This is Council for Life, a podcast engaging conversations about mental health and the Christian life with licensed biblical counselors Beth Broom and Eliza Huey. Welcome back, listeners, to Council for Life. How are you doing, Eliza? Hello. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm doing Good. well. We were just saying, listeners, that uh, you guys don't know this when we normally record, but normally we record in the mornings and you know, I've got my coffee and everything and I'm still waking up. But today it's the afternoon, which you might get a whole different side of me. I'm not really sure what it's going to happen. Where's your, where's your coffee pot, Beth? It's not, it's, I, I'm done with it. It's empty. I'm all okay. finished with my that's, coffee for the day. That's what time of day it is. It's post coffee <laughs> pot time of day. So, all right. You're, you're really outing me there. Now I'm going <laughs> to have to. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, okay, well, listeners, we have a treat for you today. We're very excited for our guest. We have today on our podcast, Jack Carson, and Jack is a PhD candidate, but he's also uh, an instructor at Liberty University. He is the executive director of the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Liberty University, and he has co-authored a book called Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us into a Deeper Faith. And this is such a great topic. You guys are going to love this conversation. But first, Jack, we'd love to just hear a little bit more about you, as much or as little as you want to share. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks, Beth and Eliza, for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to join. I think the most important thing about me to say at first is that there's never a point in the day where I'm not a coffee pot kind of person. So (laughs) sometime around 5 p.m. I might switch to decaf, but you know, it just keeps on going throughout the day. That's part of being a PhD candidate. Dissertation requires me to have a healthy and copious intake of caffeine. And so that- I'm so grateful. Yeah. For a kindred spirit. (laughs) A kindred spirit. It's important to find those people in the world who are truly redeemed and understand the common grace that is coffee. Now, now Jack, do you put stuff in your coffee or do you drink it black? I don't. Yeah. Black Black is best. Why would we we mess it up? Americano is my favorite or just straight espresso shots. So um, especially in the morning, first thing is just an espresso shot. I'm feeling like, you know, that song that they sang on Sesame Street, one of these things is not (laughs) Not like the other. That would be me. <laughs> That's okay. You're, you're good. With Got my your, water. Your water and your tea and all my of that. Tea. Yeah, it's good. Well, um, thank you again, Jack, for coming on. This this topic, even, I mean, you and I got to chat for a minute before we hit mm. record, and I am so grateful that this is something that we are talking about in the context mm. of the Christian faith and the church. Doubt is a huge topic, mm. and I think it has been one of those that... Goodness, it's it's yep. just a little bit easier to oversimplify and just say, That's stop right. it, don't feel doubt, but really, how can we engage well in our faith in the midst of doubt, recognizing that yeah. it's pointing us somewhere? So thank you again for your work on this. You've now, you now are an expert, we would call you, because you've written a book about it. And so we want to just let this be a conversation for our listeners and for our own encouragement, just, just to pick your brain a little bit about this topic. So... Mm-hmm. Let's jump right in. Uh, the first thing we want to ask you is, so when you think about people who have had exposure in the Christian faith or they are believers, what do you think are some causes of doubt? Like, what do you think starts to 
cause that doubt to creep in? What are some things that we might can look for as we think about it in our own lives? But also, you know, we've got listeners who are counselors or pastors and they're seeking to help others. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for that question. It's such an important one. And it's one that doesn't have uh, a simple answer. Doubt comes in so many forms and so many stories. And that's one of the reasons why it's become, as you said, a very difficult topic to talk about because we want to be able to give solid, what we call silver bullet arguments or mm-hmm. silver bullet solutions to doubt. But when doubt comes in a myriad of forms, uh, the, the medicine or solution for that might also come in a myriad of forms. And I guess I could offer three broad categories as I've talked to people who have gone through particularly the kind of doubt that um, you see in what's being called deconstruction nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, There are at least three things that sort of rise to the surface as what starts the doubting process. And then they all get mixed together as you go through in deconstruction. All of these come to to bear. But uh, the first one, which is what people would most quickly jump to as a source of doubt, would be like intellectual problems with Christianity. And this does uh, sometimes start the doubting process for people where they run into a question about the logical problem of evil or the veracity of the Bible and whether you can trust it or not. This, in my experience, is is rarely um, the first thing that comes around in a doubting process, but it is nonetheless really important because people think at this level oftentimes. Um, intellectual challenges become what they fixate on once they start doubting. But the two other broad categories that might start doubt for those who have been within a Christian community, maybe grew up in a Christian church, would be like... um. The biggest one may be an experiential disconnect where they had an expectation about life and how it would operate um, and something about their experience sort of led to uh, a sort of disorientation in the way they see all of this operating. So one of these could be experiencing evil in your life mm-hmm. where you have a loved one who uh, walks through a battle with cancer. And for me, I had a a cousin who was 17 uh, and had uh, been fighting cancer for, for two years. And we thought he had won his battle with cancer and it came back and it was uh, terminal. Mm-hmm. And so for a couple months, it, it, this was actually, as we first started thinking about writing this book, I was reflecting on what it's like for my young cousin who was walking through a cancer diagnosis and struggling and trying to figure out what life meant and what faith was. And he was praying and we were all praying that he would be healed. And this leads to maybe the second big experiential disconnect is unanswered prayers. Mm. This one's really common as well. If you pray and you ask God with what you feel like is your whole heart and you ask with faith and you believe that um, something will happen and it doesn't, then it leads to an experiential disconnect that causes lots of doubt that's sort of deep rooted. And then the third category, and this connects with some of my more academic work um, in my PhD, but is meeting good people who maybe don't um, fit what you expected of them. So you meet people who aren't Christians and live really good lives, or maybe are not fitting within the moral structure Christianity has prescribed and said is good for our lives. And yet you see them living what seems to be a good life mm. and you have hard, a hard time thinking about them um, being as it were outside the fold of Christianity, another experiential disconnect. And the third is again, a very common one. You have experiential disconnect is very common intellectual challenge, not so common, but then 
sort of existential anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety became a big theme as we started talking to people going through deconstruction and fear about what will happen when our loved ones die or our kids die or or the fear of failure in our faith or the fear of uncertainty causing us to um, walk away from a community that we held dear. All of these categories can, I think, as it were, sort of launch a deconstruction process. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. And I love what you said that sometimes it starts as one, but they kind of, they can all kind of meld together, which I think yeah. in yeah. the counseling room, I find that to be so very true. The initial questions that are asked, usually from my end, at least in counseling is going to come from I'm suffering and I don't understand. And I feel confused about my suffering and I'm trying to draw yeah. a conclusion. Our, our minds are designed to make sense of our world, right? Praise God that he gives us minds that want to make sense of things. But in the making sense, we then have to grapple with these things that feel like the disconnect. That's a, it's a very real thing that is very, very common. And I appreciate the way that you said it. The categories are really, really helpful. Well, and I kind of want to just... Um you know, looking at some of these things, I appreciate that you have shared like doubt comes from the, from the intellectual problems that are within Christianity. And I just appreciate you admitting that right up out of the gate, because I do think sometimes we can kind of be like, we can come across passages of scripture and it's like, how do we make sense of this? And we feel like we have to defend it. Like there's a, there's a, precise answer that it's, this is just easy when actually really, these are actually deep and hard questions. And so I appreciate you saying that because I do think that is something that even um, those who aren't in the faith will doubt Christianity because of that, you know? So, and, and I love the fact that you you start with that because it, it opens up the conversation for that. And I think we could probably have more conversation on that. Um, but I also yes. kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about and this will kind of lead me to my next question about the whole, um, the ex- experiential disconnect when you you would use the example of meeting good people who aren't yeah. Christians, but they live good lives. And I actually almost want to mm. flip that on its head and say, mm. I think there can be a an ex- experiential disconnect when you have good people who are Christians who then end up living Amen. lives that yes. don't align. And I do think that when you have that, you can have... A disillusionment that can happen. Yes. And yes. so I just want you to kind of speak to that. Maybe uh, are those the same thing, doubt and disillusionment? And if not, like what are some mm. of the differences? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll break that question apart into two and deal with the, the first part about encountering Christians who don't sort of live a life that reflects Christ and maybe in some pretty abominable ways. One of the common things I heard, uh, I'm sure timing of when we wrote our book and talked to people has a lot to do with this, but one of the common names we heard was Ravi Zacharias. Um, As we were exploring why people deconstructed, a number of people who had had their their faith strengthened by the work of Ravi as as an apologist suddenly found their faith on, as it were, shaky ground. They saw an example of someone, and a lot of times we just jump to hypocrisy, the idea that someone believes one thing and does another, and that's part of it. But I think there's another part of this plausibility structure is what I would call it, that is um, broken when you see someone who you trusted in uh, 
act as if they don't believe Christianity, because it's not just that they're being hypocritical, but it also seems to suggest that maybe they were tricking you the whole time. Mm. They don't seem to actually be believing what they're telling you to believe, not just that they're acting in disconnect with their belief, but they actually then seem to be almost malicious in the way they're operating and inviting you into a system of belief that the whole time they're living in total rejection of. Yeah. And that uh, no one wants to feel duped. No one wants to feel misled. No one wants to feel like they're taken advantage of. And when you have Christian leaders and, and the internet is a huge part of what's made this uh, so palpably available to us every day. And it's a wonderful thing that I think God is using to help us clean some of this out of the church, which, which has probably been there for a long time, but we're now seeing some of the abuse The the one pain, I think one of the pains that's being generated by this is that now as people see that it's, it's in their minds every time they think about Christianity. The failure of a Christian leader on the other side of the country can suddenly become a, a weight on you mm. um, as you work through faith. Even if they had nothing to do with your life before that, you now feel their uh, failure to live up to the demands of Christ as a reason to almost doubt your faith. Yeah. And in that, so that that's that's the disillusionment part. You start believing that there's this wonderful thing that is Christianity where people are called to die to self and live to Christ and and live sacrificially for those around them. And it's wonderful. It's a beautiful story. And it's one that has been attracting people for centuries and millennia now to live as members of the body of Christ. And they get, they get invited into the story and they love it. And then suddenly the story gets darkened by people who seemed so central to the story, as it were. They seem like leaders. They seem like people that everybody respected. And they're not doing what that story suggests. They're not actually living up to the high ideals that you were invited into. And it makes you wonder, was was it really real? Or were you sold a bill of goods? Right. And so that disillusionment isn't necessarily the same thing as doubt. Um, uh, we can get disillusioned um, with all kinds of things where we begin to struggle with whether or not it, um, it seems quite as beautiful as it once was, but that doesn't necessarily lead to doubt. It oftentimes does. And they're mixed up in this whole complex thing that is humans where we're rational creatures mm -hmm. and we're experiential creatures. And once we experientially are disillusioned, we don't see it as beautiful anymore. Mm -hmm. It can lead to a lot of doubts. Ah, uh, that's a good way to connect it. I appreciate that because, yeah, I think there feels, it feels to me like there is something different between the two. And that was a helpful yeah. explanation of that. So then let's just get really practical. What do we do? How yeah. do we walk with, care for, speak into a person's life? Because that's what a lot of people who are listening here are, are walking with people who are experiencing this. So yeah. What can you give us that's practical and yep. um, helpful for those who are walking with people, or maybe they're experiencing their own seasons of doubt or disillusionment? Um, yeah. What, what, yeah. What should we do? Yeah. So I think at least in the, so I'll focus in on particularly the issue of deconstruction because it's what we've been struggling with a lot yeah. uh, as a church. If someone is going through what we're referring to as deconstruction, a lot of times it, it operates as doubting one thing, which leads to doubting another thing, which leads to doubting another. It's a series of doubts that are interrelated and lead to one another. 
And the common theme we heard from people going through this that was sort of driving their series of doubts was anxiety, that they wanted to find a solid footing and foundation upon which to build their beliefs moving forward. They wanted to find a way to solve these questions. They weren't trying to find new doubts. They were trying to find answers. And it's just that the doubts were leading to more doubts. And so one of the things that we saw in in, um, uh, some of the most popular deconstruction accounts online show this, Rhett McLaughlin, he was the... um, He's the co-host of Good Mythic Morning, one of the most famous YouTube channels. And he shared his deconstruction account online and explains how this search for an answer on one issue, say for him, it was creation. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was a young earth creationist. How do you find an answer here when he couldn't find an answer that was perfect and satisfied all of his questions? It snowballed into other questions where he started doubting the sort of archaeological evidence of the Bible. And he wanted to find a sure answer. And this is what the philosopher Charles Taylor would say is modernity at work within us, Mm -hmm. driving us to have to find a sure answer for ourselves. And the goal here, this is the important part beyond all this intellectual stuff, is that the goal here is they want peace. Mm -hmm. They want to find peace in their belief through all this anxiety. And so what we took in the book as as a better solution on the epistemology side is this guy named Blaise Pascal, where he suggested that we don't have to have every solution all the time, but we're wagering in life. Right. And what, what this would mean for us dealing with people is that um, first we would be a non-anxious presence. So if we're not having to answer every question with a hundred percent certainty and we don't have to solve the problem, it drains the anxiety out of the conversation. We're not having to correct them when they have doubts or immediately offer a, a solution that solves it. We can listen and draw them out and give them space to explore because uh, we have a different anthropology behind what we're doing. And some of the solutions then that we can offer would be like inviting them into community where we invite them into a space where they experience not only intellectual solutions, but a community of love and, and compassion where they're able to take part in the practices of the church that have fueled faith for a long time. They're not anxiously searching for an answer, but they're praying and they're able to pray alongside others who bear with them through this doubt. And I think maybe one of the most important parts would be sort of participating in corporate worship. We have this series of seven practices at the end of the book we talk about, but participating in corporate worship, invite them in even while they're experiencing doubts, because don't one of the things we often um set up within church structures is this need for people to solve their doubts before they can be a, a, a church member in regular uh, community with the church. Mm-hmm. And so people often feel they have to solve their problems and all their doubts before stepping in and they can't share their doubts with the community. Otherwise they'll be ostracized from the community. And so one of the best medicines for doubt is the corporate worship of the body where they can Sing to God, even while they're doubting things. Um, And this would be something like St. Augustine said that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a place Mm -hmm. where sinners can step in and be healed by the corporate worship of the community. And so those would be just a couple, a couple ideas, Mm non-anxious presence, Mm -hmm. inviting them into community and inviting them into the practices of the church. So question, just because, you know, so how does Pascal's wager fit into that? Yeah, like that's what, a great question. Yeah. So pa- Pascal's wager. So I, all those solutions were sort of experiential solutions, yeah. which you're doing with the person. Pascal's wager is the um, 
the epistemology side, the, the side about how we believe things. Pascal didn't like the, uh, Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Descartes introduced to the Western world methodological skepticism, which is this idea that um, we should doubt everything. You'll see connections with deconstruction here. Doubt everything until you get to the baseline of what you cannot doubt, which for him was me, I think, therefore I am. And then you build your beliefs up one block at a time. Pascal said that that was uh, methodological atheism. It was atheism uh, in the way we go about building beliefs. And he said, what you need to start with is the conviction that as a human, you are creaturely and you won't be able to, to know everything apart from God. What we do is every day we wake up and we have to take account of who we are, the logic of our hearts. We believe in certain first principles is what he called them, um, that love is significant, that uh, there are real numbers and those numbers correspond with the world. There's all kinds of first principles he builds out. But his main point is that when you want to believe in something, you have to wager. You can't uh, prove it as a math equation would be proved. You have to put your life on the line and uh, bet on it, as it were. And betting is very different than proving. Betting is different than proving. And so he would say, when it comes to the Christian faith, we can see it as rational. It's a very rational belief. But if what you're searching for is this sort of 100% certainty that's, again, when we're talking about deconstruction, driving this process of anxiety, if you're searching for that, you're not going to find it. It's going to make you more anxious. What you need to see is as a creature, you're putting your faith in things, which is wagering. Right. So that's Pascal's wager. It's a famous I, move and it's epistemology. Yeah. I appreciated how you how you brought that back to really it is a question of faith. Yeah. Wager, bet, or maybe we're going to use right. a biblical mm-hmm. word, faith. It's so faith. well done. Right. I appreciate that explanation. I'm thinking about what you said related to the importance of if we're sitting with someone who's struggling with doubt, disillusionment, yeah. coming there with a non-anxious presence also requires something of us. Yes. And I am, uh, you know, obviously Eliza and I are counselors and we think a lot about how do we show up for those that are struggling? And we talk and think a lot about this topic of Mm. being a non-anxious presence, being a presence that can show empathy and compassion and let that be the front foot before the sort of our own anxiety of, oh no, oh no, oh no, my friend or my daughter or my husband or my small group member is struggling with doubt and I need to do something about that. That's the the anxiety. But then also I think there's an anxiety that can be personal to us that is something akin to I can't handle my own doubts. So yeah. I certainly don't know what to do with yours. So can I this is a little off the script, but can you speak to that for a moment? Like when we think about our own, like what do we need to do internally, even if we're gonna be able to sit alongside somebody that's suffering yeah. in these ways? Um, how how do we what can we what questions can we ask ourselves even? to come down to a reality that is really, I mean, I think we talked about this before we hit record, but that can actually lead us to greater intimacy with the Lord, greater connection to the body of Christ, if we're willing to like ask those questions and be curious. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, being a non-anxious presence when it comes to something as significant as people's eternal destiny is sometimes a high bar. And it does require, I think, at least two things. one, a sort of confidence in our own faith, but most importantly, a confidence in God and his, in, in him being in control, which again is a reflection on 
on our belief in God. One of the things that many people who went through deconstruction told us is that they felt like their communities were afraid of their doubts, Mm -hmm. Um, both on a communal level where they suddenly, as soon as they experienced doubts, were removed from ministry teams they may have been a part of, were put into, um, even if their doubts weren't to the point where they felt like they weren't a Christian anymore, they, as soon as they experienced doubt, they were moved away from key positions in the church, they were moved out of leadership groups, and they felt ostracized. But also on a personal level, beyond the communal level, they felt like people would pull away from them ever so slightly and almost build up walls of protection where they would um, refuse to draw out those doubts because they didn't want to be uh, forced to encounter the doubts themselves. Mm. And I know as I've talked to some of my students here who have walked through deconstruction with others, something they often feel is uh, interpersonal pressure when it comes to doubts. If there's a doubt they can't solve, Mm then they feel like that's now rubbing off doubt on them that mm. they're suddenly mm. as it were bearing the doubt of another. And that scares them because one of the things, again, this whole deconstruction process, it's anxiety, it's fear of losing your faith. And so I think one of the best things that we can do is ask ourselves serious, regular questions about our faith, both on the, the rational and experiential paths. So that we, when we step into that, aren't worried suddenly that our doubt will be shaken mm-hmm. and that we can actually bear with them. Because I do think there's a sort of almost, um, uh, there's a certain pastoral priestly role here where you're taking people's doubts, listening to them, bearing with them mm-hmm. as they're sharing their doubts and to not have to solve it right away means yeah. you're putting in some sense yourself on the line in this, or at least it feels that way yeah. to yeah. people. And so I think it does take a lot of personal work ahead of time to work through your own doubts and be very, very honest about those uh, before you're able to really bear those doubts of others. So do you sense that our listeners could pick up your book and be able to do some of that work that you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think the church is able to do that work beautifully. I think God has equipped the church with a structure that is incredible when it comes to this, that we have a community already embedded um, in our lives, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we can love one another well, we can confess to one another, we can have leaders who love us and shepherd us and point us to Jesus. And in all of those ways, the church is pretty much already equipped to become this thing. We just, in some sense, have to establish the kind of communities that are willing to talk about the doubt uh, that we're experiencing. And I, I, I think, um, to your point, yeah, picking up the book at the end, especially the practices for a church, engaging in those practices, things like we mentioned participating in sacred moments where you hold a baby, where you step into a wedding or step into a funeral, and you see moments where even in our very secular age, um, everyone experiences the imprint of the sacred. There's moments that you can't escape. And to reflect on those with your community, it does something sort of what we might call counter catechesis where the, the culture we're living in is catechizing us to be secular and mm-hmm. we feel that pressure every day. Um, but there's within the church, a counter catechesis where we're able to not only have faith, but have the kind of faith where we can bear the doubts of others. That's really helpful. Mm, beautiful. It's making me think about 
it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible that I talk about with clients and my children and <laughs> mm. um, <clears throat> is the story of Thomas and yes. how did Jesus approach mm. Thomas? who actually had a nickname for this, right? Like <laughs> yes. he was doubting Thomas, right? Yeah. And and it seems so disparaging. And yet his experience is, I'm so happy that it's in scripture because it mirrors our own. And then we get to see how Jesus responds to him yes. know, with such kindness and such, you know, I'm coming towards you. And I'm I'm saying, great, put your finger in my hand, the wound in my hand, touch my side. He's not... The Lord is not, he didn't reprimand Thomas for yes. his doubt. He actually came towards him and what a beautiful thing he did, but also what an incredible model and yeah. example for us as we seek to yes. do that with others, but also even with ourselves. I think that's something mm. I encounter with with counselees is just the the difficulty with even having compassion for our own, the ways that we wrestle right? Like I shouldn't mm. be worried about this, or I shouldn't be thinking, I shouldn't feel anxious about my faith that, you know, my, my preacher taught me to just stand firm on the foundation and, 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 and don't ever have a question. And right. so this means I must not be a good, it's like, we have to be able to say part of our humanity, part of what it means yes. to be human is to yes. not understand is to feel yes. confused and doubt and, and, and disillusionment. And I'm looking at a suffering world and my yes. own suffering body and flesh and going, this, this isn't right doesn't yes. make sense. And if I don't have safe spaces where I can do that work, goodness, I don't know how I'll really move towards a deeply intimate relationship with the yes. Lord or with my community. And so, yeah, man, I, I love, I love the fact that yeah. the Lord gives us that right in scripture to lean yeah. on. And I think in the story of Thomas, one of the things that I love is that Jesus is sort of bearing his wounds for yeah. Thomas as a way to to draw Thomas in. And I do think uh, by way of analogy here for many of us, as we're walking through doubt with others, one of the best things we can do is bear our wounds. If we've experienced seasons of doubt where we have walked through something similar and it's not, doesn't mean we found the solution and we're somehow further along uh, in their epistemological journey than they are, but we show them that they're not alone and feeling these pressures. And we, we explain things like you were mentioning, that as uh, Christians, we believe ourselves to be contingent. We're not God. We are contingent creatures who uh, suffer from all the things that come with being creaturely, with being mm -hmm. imperfect and having things we don't know. And I think in each of those categories, um, we can look at the example of Jesus with Thomas and see what it means to love those who are experiencing doubt. Well, and even just thinking about, like we've already said, he, he drew near to Thomas, but he also yes. encouraged Thomas to draw near to him, to come to Correct. him, to touch him. And that's that thinking about that whole idea of like, you kind of touched on it of what practices build assurance yes. like coming to Jesus, <laughs> yes. coming to the Lord and knowing that he welcomes that. Yeah, I think of the late Tim Keller when he, one of the last things he expressed um, was that there's, at that point in his life, there was nothing he could imagine that could possibly make him doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And one of the reasons he says, one of the strongest reasons are the profoundly experiential yeah. um, parts of his life that have drawn him in and have shown him this to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if he was sharing with us what some of those would be, I imagine them to be those practices, the corporate mm-hmm. worship, the prayer, the coming alongside a community that loves you and that you love and being drawn out as a human in some sense to be what Christians would say it means to be truly human, someone who is a person of love and peace in a community of love and peace. Thank you so much. What a gift. Yeah. And I think, I think that that can be sort of, it can be one of the things that as you're facing doubts can be the very thing that you would feel like you shouldn't do is lean into Mm. those practices because, well, how do I lean in? Because we're, we live in a culture where, uh, That's right. Transparency or or um, mm-hmm. authenticity, I guess. Authenticity. Yep. Age is of authenticity. Like, yeah. And I think in some ways you can get this sense of, well, if I'm doing that, but I'm not really feeling those things or I'm struggling with actually what I'm engaging in, uh, then I'm not being authentic. Mm-hmm. No, not necessarily. You actually, if you if you go and you go as a struggler, mm-hmm. you're being incredibly authentic. You yes. know, so I think those things also can help. That's right. in Building those assurances. So definitely. yeah, and and this is what and this is what the Psalter shows us. This the mm-hmm. Book of Psalms shows us yeah. a series of laments, of imprecations. There are moments in the Psalter where the the psalmist is actually saying that he's accusing God of being unfaithful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we now theologically reflect on that and say, God is in fact unfaithful. What we're saying is there is a sense in the Psalter that God can handle our laments and our imprecations, the whole range of human emotions. And in that we can still praise God. Mm. So there's an invitation here that there's a full orb human experience embedded within the center of the text where humans are praying to God and expressing those emotions. Some of them quite raw and painful, um, especially those Psalms of lament and imprecation. Wow. Yeah. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging. I think um, I sometimes think we want something like you said, some silver bullet, some greater, um, you know, simple answer. That's going to just be like, this is the, this is the thing that's going to solve mm-hmm. that. But um, it's more of a yeah, process, and, I think. So, And a lot of times that silver bullet people can put their hope in something like historical res- uh, evidence for the resurrection, which is wonderful or the cosmological argument. But when you encounter someone who doesn't find that argument to be fully convincing, if you expected it to be 100%, that leads to that disillusionment. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, this was a great conversation. And um, I just appreciate your willingness to to lean into it a little bit with with, uh, our listeners, with Beth and I. Your book is called Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us into a deeper faith. And we will put a link in the show notes so people can find that book and find you. And um, yeah, appreciate the the contribution you've made in that. And, and thank you for being here with us today. So it's, it was great to have you for sure. Thanks. Thanks, Eliza. And thanks, Beth, for having me on. Absolutely. And I just want to leave listeners with just a couple of things to think about in light of today. Um, for those of you who are walking with people who are struggling with doubt, don't be, I I, I kind of captured this from the conversation. Don't be afraid of doubt contagion and really leave it as a, also don't be afraid of that, 
that doubt solution. Like I got to jump to a solution as well. So it's, it's not going to be something that is going to destroy a relationship if you don't have an immediate answer. And a person's doubt, as they struggle with doubts, that should not be a determining factor as to whether or not you can engage with them. So for those of you who are walking with people, I kind of grabbed that. And for those of you who are struggling with doubts, this wasn't said, but it was something that kind of came to my mind as we were talking, that there's a lot of things that we can doubt in this life. And Christianity is one of them. And there are, I'm, I am going to be the first person to be honest, like there are some things that are just complex and hard to, hard to make sense of. But we can doubt a lot of things. But one thing that I think sometimes we need to actually doubt is our doubts. And so, you know, leaving that with, if you are struggling with doubts, it's also okay to doubt your doubts. So I hope this has been a helpful conversation and uh, will not just be helpful for those who are walking with people, but for those who are honestly struggling with things like doubt. And we we want to be a practical resource for you in bringing these conversations and bringing people like Jack on the com- into the conversation. So we hope that you will continue to listen with us and we're going to talk about lots of other things that are complex and tricky and, and needed as well. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Council for Life. We want to invite you to become a friend of the podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. Subscribers get to participate in quarterly Zoom calls with the hosts, where you can ask questions and engage in topics related to past or upcoming episodes. Subscribers are also automatically entered into drawings for free books and resources. For more information, visit www.counselforlifepodcast.com. And as always, be sure you stay in the loop by hitting that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode.